this is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. The Body Mass Index, or BMI, is pretty commonly used in doctor's rooms and also by people at home to quantify body composition. It's pretty simple. You don't need any specialised equipment. You just measure your weight in kilograms and divide it by your height in metres squared. And you get a number. That number places you in a category as, and I quote, obese, overweight, underweight or healthy. And these categories are used to analyse your risk of developing certain conditions, such as type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure. But some health professionals are beginning to doubt how useful the BMI really is, and a warning that in some cases, it could actually be harmful. Today, is it time to get rid of the BMI? It's Tuesday, the 8th of November. So, Donna, BMI, or the Body Mass Index, is fairly ubiquitous. Most people would have heard of it. Where did this come from, though? So, the concept of BMI was created by a man named Adolf Ketelet. He was this 19th century Belgian astronomer and mathematician. Donna Liu is a science writer at Guardian Australia. And his goal was to describe what he termed l'homme-moyant, so the statistically average man. And he argued that by measuring a large number of people, you could approximate the quote-unquote ideal of what a person should look like. And famously, he went around measuring the chest circumference of Scottish soldiers at the time to do this. So he just went around measuring people to try and find out what the average body is supposed to look like, essentially. Yeah, and he measured about 5,000 people, so it was a you know, significant undertaking. As an aside, Cadillac's work actually influenced the development of eugenics. Uh, his work was later taken up by Francis Galton, who um, coined the term eugenics in 1883. And Galton, who happened to be a half-cousin of Charles Darwin, used similar methods to Cadillac, but, but twisted the notion of the average man to seeing it as something that was mediocre and that could be improved upon, which then opened a whole can of very problematic worms. Right, how do we get to the perfect man? And his conclusion, I imagine, was a white man. Yeah, yeah, it's a, that's a whole other podcast episode. But back to BMI. So initially it was actually called the, the Ketelet Index and the term body mass index was then only coined by uh, researchers, Ansel Keys and four other uh, researchers in 1972. And even, even they were aware that it wasn't fully satisfactory. It wasn't perfect. Um, But because it was really simple to calculate, they figured that it was at least as good as any other index that that had been developed up until that point. Right. This is something that's simple to use and will catch on quickly, even though it has flaws, were were their thoughts. Exactly. And popularity and simplicity, unfortunately, don't necessarily equate to accuracy. And when did this idea really start to take hold, that we can measure people's height and weight to try and determine things about their health? So the the links between weight, um, obesity and health outcomes has been documented all the way back to the ancient Greeks. 
But fatness as a, a population level public health medical issue really arose in um, the West only in the past century and American life insurance companies were involved. So essentially they began collecting data on weights and heights and, and linking the information to mortality. So in 1959, the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company in the US began publishing tables of average body weight to height ratios, and uh, that these were compared to mortality data and also the risks of developing certain chronic diseases. And this kind of data is now collected um, very regularly and um, you know, it's, it's quite widespread, particularly in epidemiology where researchers use it to monitor trends over time. For example, at a population level, research tells us that having a high BMI is associated with a greater risk of conditions like type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure. So Donna, I've had my BMI analysed at the gym before. I see little pop-up ads on the internet for it as well. But I'm wondering how much it's used specifically in the medical profession and, and what it's used for. It's really ubiquitous in medical practice. You know, you might get your BMI measured when you go and see your GP, um, but doctors also use it for things like dosing medication or stratifying risk for certain operations. And it's also used routinely to monitor children who are growing and, you know, their, their height and weights are taken quite regularly. So despite the ubiquity of the BMI, some experts are beginning to question its use. Why? I spoke to Dr Alex Craven, who is an obesity surgeon from Austin Health in Melbourne, and he's concerned by what he sees as an over-reliance on BMI as a single indicator for health for individuals. He was part of a panel of experts who discussed the usefulness of BMI at uh, the International Congress on Obesity, which was held in Melbourne last month. And in that panel, they suggested that health judgments based only on BMI can be stigmatizing and potentially harmful. And Craven says that, you know, for some reason with obesity, we accept that we can give people advice based entirely on one number to say, you know, your BMI is this and therefore you're automatically unhealthy. While BMI can be useful for an individual, Craven made the comparison to me that using it in isolation would be like a GP taking your heart rate, for example, and not looking at anything else, giving you a diagnosis and a medication based on that. Right, I have heard from health advocates that people with higher weights are constantly being told by their GP to lose weight. And it's later proven that they had a serious condition that was completely unrelated to their weight. Where is this mindset within the medical profession coming from, Donna? I spoke to Dr. Fiona Willer, who is a dietitian and a lecturer at the Queensland University of Technology, and she's frustrated by what she describes as a panic about body weight, um, and she sees the popularity of BMI as part of that. And essentially, a, a professional bugbear of hers is that, um, you know, the rise in obesity rates in recent decades has led to public health messaging that seems to prioritise weight control over good diet. And there are so many things that impact someone's weight and um, also, therefore, the accuracy of your BMI as an indicator of health, um, from race to genetics to medical conditions. 
Right, let's talk about these shortcomings. I mean, perhaps unsurprisingly for a metric with its origins in 19th century Europe and a man going around and uh, measuring the Scottish men's chests, it does tend to work better on white people, this BMI measure. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So in comparison with Europeans, um, people of Polynesian background, for example, have lower levels of body fat at the same BMI. So the metric actually tends to overestimate the true rates of obesity for these people. And studies have also found similar overestimations for African-Americans, for example. Um, But for Asian people, there's an opposite effect. Their health risks linked to obesity seem to occur at a lower BMI. And that's actually prompted countries like Singapore to revise their guidelines downwards so that a quote unquote healthy BMI range is classified as being between 18.5 and 22.9 rather than the WHO guidelines of 24.9. Another shortcoming of the index is that it doesn't take into account something known as fat distribution. What does that mean, Donna? So fat distribution is essentially where the fat is stored on your body. And importantly, that is linked to different health outcomes. Uh, Centrally distributed fat, for example, so that's fat around your abdomen and internal organs, um, that's more likely to pose a health risk than fat on um, the buttocks. And that's because not all fat is the same. Um, Around internal organs, it's is what's called visceral fat. And and that, for example, has a stronger link to type 2 diabetes compared to subcutaneous fat, which is fat that's found under the skin. And where you store fat on your body is determined in part by your genetics. And that also varies across ethnic groups independent of obesity. Right. So you could just be born with a body that is more likely to store fat in places that's bad for your health. What else kind of skews the BMI data here? BMI is also less accurate if you're very muscly. Um, Muscle, as I think many people know, is denser than fat. And so the metric's less accurate in that case. It's also less accurate if you're quite short or quite tall. And then another thing is that obesity you know, outside of the the categories um, stipulated by BMI, obesity can also be defined as an an excessive accumulation of fat that presents a risk to health. And Dr. Priya Sumitran, who leads the obesity research group at the University of Melbourne, told me there might be people whose BMI is above 30 who don't have unhealthy fat accumulation, but Similarly, there are people whose BMI is in the quote-unquote healthy range um, who do have health conditions like type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure. I feel like so much of the health messaging that we receive is that thin equals healthy. And from what you've told me, the pitch is just a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, I think this really speaks to what Dr. Fiona Willow was saying in that, you know, you can't assess a person's nutrition and health just based on their body size. And interestingly, Dr. Willer's PhD thesis was on eating behavior and and size acceptance. And she found that people who focused on a healthy lifestyle and a healthy diet, regardless of BMI, actually had more nourishing dietary patterns. And the opposite was true for people who prioritized um, weight reduction above all else. They actually had the most restrictive um, and nutritionally poor diets. Do we know whether this broad focus on BMI as a society 
could be making us less healthy then if it's not accurate and it's not looking at the whole picture? Well, it's complicated. Some researchers recognise that the overall focus on obesity means we might be unintentionally creating an environment which can trigger unhealthy eating behaviours or make people who are living in larger bodies feel uncomfortable. Dr Craven told me, for example, that he has patients for whom the societal pressure to be a certain size is causing real physical and mental harm. Next, is it time to ditch the BMI? Hey, Laura Murphy Oates here. If you're enjoying Full Story, I think you'll really like another podcast we make here at Guardian Australia called Book It In. On Book It In, some of Australia's favourite authors open up about the ideas behind their books in personal and thought-provoking conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. This week, you'll hear award-winning fiction writer S.L. Lim grapple with rage and revenge through a protagonist who doesn't fit her family's expectations. Anger is a kind of truth-telling, and in some ways it can be quite cleansing and clarifying of the fact that our hero or anti-hero of the book is someone who has no real restrictions certainly on their expression of anger. They're not ashamed of feeling angry. Subscribe to Book It In Now on your favourite podcast player and listen to SL Lim's episode on Thursday. I'm wondering, considering all the issues that you've outlined, Donna, whether BMI does have a place. Should we just do away with this altogether? Well, Professor Louise Bauer at the University of Sydney, and she's also president of the World Obesity Federation, she told me that BMI is still a useful measure for illustrating population trends over time, and it's used by epidemiologists globally. So we know, for example, that the percentage of people with a high BMI has increased quite dramatically over the past few decades from what it was, and that's in Australia and many other high-income countries. Or it also tells us that um, in South Africa, for example, women are more likely to have a high BMI than men, or that in China, boys are now more likely to have a high BMI than girls of the same age. And these are patterns that aren't seen in other countries. So at a population level, BMI can reveal these trends over time. And they're, I guess, an important signal to researchers to look into what might be driving these population level changes. Hmm. So it's still useful to detect health trends in large populations. But what about when you go to your GP for a health checkup? Is there a better way to look at your individual health risk for certain conditions? That's unsurprisingly a a tricky question to answer, given that the persistence of BMI is linked in no small part to the fact that it's very simple to calculate. But there are things in the works. Uh, For example, there is currently a Lancet commission, and this is linked to the, the academic journal, The Lancet. This commission, which is a group of International experts are currently looking into the diagnostic criteria for obesity. So they're currently assessing the use of BMI and discussing new ways to diagnose obesity and overweight um, and talking about, you know, whether there are better measures of body composition that could be used um, in addition or instead of BMI. Right. So they're looking at 
creating a whole new way of measuring this. But are there metrics that are currently in use that medical professionals could be using? There are. There are alternative metrics. Uh, One of them is waist to hip ratio. And that one has been found to be a better predictor of cardiovascular disease than BMI. The downsides with using a waist circumference um, is that they're quite hard to take accurately. I don't know whether you've ever tried to do it yourself, but you'd have to take into account like where is the narrowest part of your waist? Are you breathing out? Or are you breathing in when you take the, the measurement? How tall are you pulling the tape? That kind of thing. And also the ratio, so that's waist to hip ratio, doesn't work accurately for children. There's also waist to height ratio, which does work for children. I think it's above the age of six. And that may be a better predictor of mortality risk than BMI is. There's also a scale which is called the Edmonton Obesity Staging Score and that measures the impact of obesity and and takes into account conditions like type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure. And Dr Craven told me that basically he can teach his patients to use it in under five minutes and he can teach junior doctors and nurses. You know, the only drawback, and it's not even really a drawback, is that medical professionals need to talk to their patients with a bit of curiosity and ask questions that are, you know, often more important to people than their weight anyway. And so this staging score essentially asks people questions to do with health conditions and looking at the impact of their weight on their life, if there is any. It sounds like we're not about to move away from BMI overnight, but there are things in the works. What would you like people to take away from your reporting on BMI? I guess the main thing is that, you know, it's it's quite a useful measure at a population level, but at an individual level, it's just a number and it doesn't necessarily tell us anything about an individual's health. And so, you know, the thing I think to keep in mind is that we do need a more nuanced approach than just simply using one metric for a person. That was Donna Liu, a science writer for Guardian Australia. You can read her piece titled BMI, Why Experts Are Calling for Better Ways of Assessing Health Than a Body Mass Index at theguardian.com and we've also linked to it on the Full Story page. This episode was produced by Joey Watson, sound designed by Joe Koning. The executive producers of Full Story are Molly Glassie, Gabrielle Jackson, Miles Martignoni and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow.